You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Yeah, I mean, just share this episode. Say, hey, you know, you want to learn about piranha? Like, come on. Who doesn't want to know more about piranhas? Like, What can they teach us? What they found is there's three unique sounds, okay? And the first one is barking. So it's true. They bark. And... Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I'm excited for this one. Piranha, piranha, piranha. I was super excited to research this animal. It it has been. It's been a really fun week. In fact, even last evening, uh, my husband and I were just kind of chilling out uh, at bedtime, just uh, watching YouTube videos. And even, even he was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, these, there's a, it was a lot to learn. It was a lot of fun. And I actually, Chris, I was, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is our first freshwater fish. Yeah. I mean, we, the last thing we did, cause I always go back to the Amazon and I was thinking of them while we did this episode or while we were researching for this episode, electric eel was you know freshwater eel from south america but yeah we have we haven't done many fish besides sharks. in general yeah we usually in general try, <laughs> yeah. even sharks just because the physiology is once again spoiler alert like we are not uh, fish physiologists biologists, or biologists. Yeah. so yeah. any of you out there listening yeah. uh, don't don't cringe if we don't go too deep into the swim bladder or lateral line or some of these other yeah, yeah, yeah. unique physiological features but but yeah, but the behavior is super cool, and it's a fun species to cover, I think, for this uh, spooky Halloween month that we've been mm-hmm. having fun doing this year and actually organized enough to do it. So we've, I'll have to I have to pat ourselves on the back <laughs> for that I at know. least. Yeah, it was good. So was and some good. really, really great interviews that have already come through this past month and even more coming down the pipes. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Busy. yeah, yeah busy. it's been busy, busy and fun. Bees. Yeah, busy week this week, Angie, doing a couple more interviews that will be announced uh, here shortly. But yeah, Piranha, I mean, just the fearsome reputation, you know, almost I say akin to sharks, they, as far as a freshwater, mm-hmm. you know, if you were, if you asked anybody, is there any fish in the freshwater that would scare you, it would be Piranha, you know, right away. People would say, oh my gosh, Piranha, they have this reputation for being ferocious, feeding frenzy, it goes back to an awesome movie 
made in the 70s, a great decade of, of horror films. This movie was called <laughs> Piranha. It was probably, <laughs> I think I saw it a long time ago. Probably really horribly done, you know, one of those just old, bad Yeah, I haven't B seen movies. it. I, I, yeah. I was reading about it when I was prepping this week for Piranha, but I, yeah. I it was, it looked pretty cheesy, to be honest. Yeah, there you go. Cheesy, cheesy. And kind of, you know, helped spread the reputation that these are killers. And the one, you know, we're going to kind of focus in on is the red bellied Piranha, because that's the most infamous. Mm-hmm. It's the most aggressive. It, it has the sharpest teeth. Some people have them as pets. They hunt in groups. So fun stuff to talk about. But Chris, what I also found was interesting, besides the movie Piranha in the 70s, like you mentioned, the Piranha got a bad name or a bad rap actually years ago at the turn of the century, around 1913, Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. an American president came down to that area in that region and through his writing and more specifically in a book called Through the Brazilian Wilderness – Gave these uh, piranhas a pretty bad rap. And so mm-hmm. the fear has been spread for a while. And do you know who that president is? Uh, yeah, Mr. Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> so right. I was reading some of that. He wasn't yeah. president in 1913, but he was an ex-president, an explorer. And we have the Panama Canal because of him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, reading that story about how the locals, I think they threw a dead cow in the river or something. And he just saw the feeding frenzy. He was just like, my goodness. I mean, imagine seeing that 100 years ago, you know, not having the internet, not having. Well, and the fish biologists and the yeah. understanding of the physiology and all of that. Yeah. No, it, I mean, quite honestly, some of the videos John and I were up watching late last night were, were <laughs> feeding videos of piranhas. Uh, one was at the Tennessee Aquarium. We'll put it up, we'll link it on our show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was a, a couple of them either on BBC or National Geographic. Uh, where they have wonderful underwater cameras and then they put these whole carcasses in the water and within minutes, within minutes, uh, uh, carcass with, of course, you know, flesh or feathers mm-hmm. or whatever they're feeding it was devoured to literally just a skeleton. So, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> crazy. These things are nuts. Oh, there's fun. You can, this is I mean, be- and, 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 and of course, we'll highlight their behavior and that this mm-hmm. is. Yeah, how they generally don't interact with humans and things like that. And they usually go for dead prey and they're omnivores. Yeah. They eat fruit too. That's pretty mm-hmm. crazy. But it is, it is your mind do- can go to spooky Halloween places when you watch those videos late at night of yes. like, well, what if I did fall into the river? What would happen? Uh, however, we'll answer some of those questions towards the end of the podcast as far as how many human piranha negative interactions there are or deaths mm-hmm. or things like that. So stay tuned and uh, you'll learn a little bit more about that. I know Chris, he's our stats man. He's got the, yeah. he's got the statistics for you. No. And I mean, it, it's, there's some just fast, I was fascinated about some of the stuff, especially the behavior. So I know once we get to the behavior, some of the things they do, as a fish species, I was like, are you kidding me? It just blew me away. Blew me away. Another fun, fun species, fun episode, uh, fun doing the research. Also, I have to push it this week, Angie. The day this releases on October 20th is International Sloth Day. Since we're in South America, I have to promote this interview this week. It is Dr. Rebecca Cliff from the Sloth Conservation Foundation conservation rock star this is somebody like angie and i so look up to somebody that after her graduate studies 
said, hey, so this is you know for you and John to start your Hippo Foundation. She said, there's not really not a sloth foundation out there. She said there, there was rescue and re- rehab places, but not a foundation. She's like, there's this need. I'm going to fill it. And she went and founded the Sloth Conservation Foundation. I mean, wow. Wow. I mean, wow. It's, it's one of those things where we talk about how one person can really make a difference. And I know in my interview last week with, uh, with Brian Pope, the director of Luby Conservancy, he shared some stories too about individuals he's known throughout the community over in Madagascar and things like that, where it was literally one individual fighting for these critically endangered bats. And Chris, I just love meeting these people and hearing these stories, and it it does it does give me hope and and know that there are so many conservation heroes out there fighting the good fight, the hard fight, and the long fight, and we just love to support them on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's always fun. I mean, you know, she was in in the jungles of Costa Rica, you know, in her little research place, you know, on the internet talking to me. I'm thinking of Sonarto in Java talking to you, you know, doing his tiger research. Greg Rasmussen down in Zimbabwe, uh, Julian in uh, Africa doing the Giraffe Conservation Foundation stuff. I just I love it. I love talking to these rock stars, these people that dedicate their life. And she's amazing interview. So you have that to look forward to. Uh, and sloths are just amazing. I love, <laughs> I, I, I have like a whole lecture for one of my ecology classes I teach that is all about sloths because they're yeah. just, the ecology, like they are their own ecological environment of symbiosis. And yeah, they're so cool. They're so cool. Yeah, they're amazing. They're amazing. And then I just have to give a, a big shout out to Allison. Thank you for joining us on Patreon this week. You know, you're going to help us out. And pretty soon we'll figure out who we're sending money to again this month. So, you know, we're out there helping people like the Sloth Conservation Foundation that were able to send some money and, and at least highlight them and, and spread their message and give this free education out. And then just a shout out to Pip. She was the one that told us to do piranhas this week. And I was like, oh, God, that's a perfect that's a species for October. So yeah. anyway, shout out to her. Yeah. And a big thank you to Cole Johnson 01 for a wonderful review on iTunes. It was just really a pleasure to read. And we just Thank you for writing your words, giving us five stars, and helping boost our circulation in the different podcast networks and things like that. It, a lot of it is review-based, so thank you, Cole Johnson 1. And for anybody out there listening, it takes like two minutes to write us a lovely, handy-dandy yeah. review on review, iTunes, yeah. and we really appreciate it because we do see our – it does help us generate more – interest, which generates more education, which generates more love and conservation for animals, which is why Chris and I do this each week. Yeah. And I mean, just share this episode. Say, hey, you know, you want to learn about piranha? Like, come on. <laughs> Who doesn't want to know more about piranhas? Like, share well, this with some of your friends and, and they'll learn about this incredible fish. Yeah. Well, and well, Chris, let's start off by describing a piranha because first of all, it doesn't really look like you would think it looks like. And I don't know if I'm just naive or because I'm not a fish biologist, but I guess I thought it looked more of like a barracuda, like more longer. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when I really started diving into prepping for this podcast, it's just kind of a, it has a cute goldfish shaped body, if you will. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's got, got that, it. yeah, that oval shape and yeah. some, some fins and a tail and, of course, we think of piranha, we think of teeth, and we have a whole section where we'll be talking about teeth and bite force here coming up soon. But 
their teeth don't really show. They actually just look like these cute little fish that have a pretty severe underbite. <laughs> I will give them that. And because of this like severe looking underbite, you just, you kind of just like, oh, I want to give them a little fishy kiss. You know, it doesn't no, look that bad. Don't, don't. No, you don't. Because then I kept Googling images of them. And yeah. then there was some where they showed with their mouths open. Opened. Yeah. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to fact check this. Like, this can't be real. These teeth cannot be yeah. real. And they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, they yeah. were. So uh, I, that's, and I'm not describing them very well, but it just in general, they don't, on the exterior, just the first glance, if there was a whole bunch of fish in an aquarium and somebody was like, find the piranha, mm-hmm. I would have pro- definitely pointed out the wrong one to begin with. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, they are. I mean, they are like, you know, a gold a big goldfish with the red you know, we're gonna talk about the red belly, but just general piranhas, you know, is uh they are that oval shape. The red bellied obviously is red. I mean, red underneath, that's very striking for them. And actually the red bellied piranha, I mean, being it is the most popular, but it's actually the smallest or one of the smallest piranha species. So right. yeah. Yeah. And and it's not small. I'm not saying no. they're they're not guppy size. These no. are they get up to nine pounds or four kilograms, mm-hmm. you know, 20 inches is standard like length, mm-hmm. you know, 50 centimeters, you know, on average 14 inches. So, I mean, that's still a good size fish. This isn't a tiny little thing. Now I will say the teeth, there's, there's many of them. We're going to talk about it, but they're tricuspid and they're only about 0.15 inches long or four millimeters. So they're not huge teeth. You know, where a great white shark's tooth is like two and a half inches long. Right. Or 60 millimeters. But they can do damage. <laughs> they can do a <laughs> lot of damage. So we'll talk about that. And I think it's important to point out because I respect fish and fish colors. I love snorkeling and scuba diving. And I actually think the red belly piranha is a very pretty fish. And depending on where they range, there are some shade variations. And typically juveniles or young fish uh, have more of a silver color with darker spots, but the adults, besides this red belly, the the top or dorsal portion of their body is grayish in color, but it also has these beautiful silver speckles all over. So they have a lot of shimmer to them, and especially when you're watching a feeding frenzy, that's kind of pretty when they flash by you. It's like a disco party, uh, <laughs> and so. But just from an attractive point of view, uh, I think they're really good looking fish and. I was surprised that they were kept as aquarium pets, and we'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. But in the other instance, I guess I'm not totally because they are, and they do have these unique dietary habits and things like that. So um, I, when I was reading about keeping them as pets, they did say they're for experienced aquarium owners and things like mm-hmm. this. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, over minus when its teeth are open, when its mouth. <laughs> Its mouth is wide open. I I think they're quite beautiful fish. And there's actually several species of piranhas. So, yeah, we're just going to focus on the the red belly today. And and we'll throw out some other fun facts about some of the bigger ones and things like that. Yeah, no, no, no. And then, you know, obviously these are ranging in South America, uh, the red bellied. So they're found in, they call them neotropical, the rivers down, you know, going all the way from Argentina up in Brazil. Venezuela, uh, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, all of those rivers. Um, you know, I, I read that, you know, generally they can live 60 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, river, I don't know if rivers get that that hot. That's pretty hot. But I mean, it's right 15, there by – yeah, it's yeah. right there by the equator. Uh-huh. And, yeah, it's warm. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're, really they're warm, yeah. a really diverse species of fish because they can be found in all sorts of types of water. And so one little thing I dorked out about this week is that in uh, these river basin areas, the rivers are classified by their chemistry. And so mm-hmm. – there's white water and then there's black water and there's clear water. And red bellies typically are found in the white water. Unlike its name, it doesn't mean that the river is white or even clear. Uh, it more has to do, once again, with the, the sediment and the overall chemistry of the water. And white waters are actually brown coffee in color. So I thought that was a little okay. interesting. Uh Whereas obviously black water is also dark in color and he has even more sediments in it. And then clear water typically has like less sediments in it. And Chris, I was blessed enough to see this sediment chemistry of Amazon Basin River water in action when many, many moons ago I was traveling throughout South America and I spent a lot of time in Northern Brazil in a town called Manaus. And it's right there on the Amazon River. And I got a chance to do like a little riverboat tour of meeting of the waters it's called. And mm-hmm. basically this is a long line where the dark Rio Negro water comes into the sandy colored Amazon river because they have different chemistries of the water and of the amount, types and amount of sediments in them. And it's, it's really a gnarly phenomenon of where you're in this large wide, wide river, but one half of it, is light brown and the other half is dark brown and there's really a line <laughs> like you can see the line so it was just it's just phenomenal and uh i it does attract tourists when they're up in the manaus region of course as does some of the um the amazonian tours and riverboat tours and things like that but just really really cool and so from my understanding is that these red belly piranhas can live in both of these types of waters but however prefer the white water or the little bit the little bit lighter coffee color i think about, it's the difference of like how, white water i know, it's, well, it's, I know. It's, it's, it's like me with my uh, the older i get for some reason i keep adding more cream to my coffee i don't do sugar that's true so. yeah 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 bless my husband's heart he does too yeah. much sugar and i'm always trying to be like yeah. less sugar less but sugar, i yeah. i will do milk or cream and i and i don't know if my taste buds are changing but i feel like i'm adding more and more to it so it's still that mm. brown color but it's a very light <laughs> caramel and I yeah, guess that's okay. what they consider white water uh, in in the Amazon basins. As well, I was going to ask you. I remember you. You know, I love hearing your stories about your exploits down there. So you do have that that dark color, the Rio Negro. Because I'm going to talk about the Rio Negro here in a minute. And did you see any clear water? I mean, is there any clear water in the Amazon? Just because I imagine so much rainfall, so much drainage of soils and the nutrients and everything circulating in that water. So I'm not a river ecologist, but yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't, I didn't, I did not. uh, My my girlfriend and I, uh, Nani, that I was traveling with, um, Mm. we were actually traveling with another nice gentleman from uh, Australia named Matt on the Move. Yeah, this was so many years ago. Who knows where he ended up? But Matt on the Move, he was. He was, and I call him Matt on the move because that was like his AOL, AOL name. Remember when we used to use AOL yeah, yeah, yeah. for emails? But he was a <laughs> he was a tour guide. Don't date yourself. I know. <laughs> that, I know. Was, that, that was his Instagram profile. <laughs> <laughs> right. He probably has one. He was a real cool dude. But he was a uh, he was a a tour guide in yeah. Australia, and so mm-hmm. he just. Would, I mean, it's almost like I've been to Australia because he was telling me you know, all these amazing things about Australia, which I haven't been to Australia. 
on my bucket list. It, I yes. just can't wait to go there. But yeah, but yeah, so it was Nani, Matt, and I, and we met up in Venezuela, and we actually did uh, uh, Angel Falls, one of the tallest mm-hmm. or the tallest uh, uh, waterfall in the world. Just I looks beautiful. Fly in a, in a oh, cheap so in beautiful. a cheap little plane. That's a crazy oh, story God. too. And a, a cheap plane, <laughs> like over it, where I remember halfway through the flight, I was like, "Oh my gosh, they're like gauges aren't working." <laughs> Like, why are we still alive? Yeah, it was yeah. wow. The things you do in your early twenties. Um, yeah. But at any rate, we also went to uh, Manaus together, and he mm-hmm. was—he actually did decide to go on and take this three three week Amazon tour on a riverboat. That then you end up, I think, heading down to Peru. Nani mm-hmm. and I. We had about three months to travel, but we thought three weeks was a little too long. It was a little too pricey, and we kind of wanted to head more south to Brazil towards uh, Argentina and things like that. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to go mm-hmm. see just, uh, Rio, uh, Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. So at any rate, we 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 bid our ways goodbye. But to answer your question with my long harangue of a story, I apologize for that. These <laughs> memories are just so fun. Is that, that is fun. I think the clear water comes in during the rainy season when the rivers flood into the forest areas. Okay, okay. And I think that is where it of course there's some tannins and leaves and mm. things like that, but the water is only flooded into the forest floors uh on some of these little side uh estuaries or uh, that that's when it's considered clear water because it doesn't, it doesn't have as much time, it doesn't have like river b- bottom sediment. And right, then of right. course a lot of these floodplains will reside when the rainy season lets up and then they'll, they'll dry up. So I believe that's really some of the only clear water because for what I saw, it was all brown or dark brown. brown. So, but I didn't, well, I didn't spend as much yeah. time there as I would like as well. And so a good one to ask would actually be Susan from the Amazon river right. dolphin conservation fund. Cause she spent, she usually goes down there with tour groups once or twice a year. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking of them and some of the the documentaries I've watched. And you're right. I was thinking of the floodplains. It is clear there. But remember, the Amazon river dolphins have those little tiny eyes. I mean, they they don't really use their eyesight all that much because the rivers are so cloudy. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't do And I was lucky enough on, yeah, I was lucky enough on the Meeting of the Waters tour to see uh, a dolphin, a pink dolphin breach. That's so amazing. that's cool. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, piranha, I, I don't know if we're going to get there. I'm going to ask you. Well, did, okay. I might as well ask you now. Did you get to eat or see any piranhas? The local fishermen? No, no. Oh, okay. I mean, I, okay. that was definitely something that was missed or something that I didn't really, wasn't in tune that. to because obviously I, I, you know, tend to, especially before this podcast has educated me so much about more about birds and reptiles and fish yeah. and things like that. I was, I was more interested in kind of some of the mammals at that point in time and, uh, but of course I had heard stories about piranhas and, you know, don't go into the, into the river to bathe just for fun or swim or things like that. So, um, but nope, I didn't, I didn't see any, but I also didn't, like I said, I didn't spend as much time on the water as I would have liked to now hindsight 2020. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, obviously. Well, well I'm going to talk about them in a minute, but you know, the ecological niche of a piranha, I mean, I think just helping maintain river ecosystems and, you know, not, I mean, not being so much, I don't know, like kind of a cleanup system, I would almost think too, you know, for carcasses and things that might fall in there. I mean, that's a lot of what, we'll talk about what they eat, but, you know, they, they I think they do have a, they have a very specific ecological, ecological niche in these important estuaries and rivers, right? I mean, that, that's, that's big for them. 
Oh, Chris, definitely. I mean, they're not an apex predator, so they're not like a shark. It's not going to be quite as damaging if you like pull great whites out of the water and they become extinct. However, they do have a, a variety of a diet. Uh, they do consume uh, a lot of animals that might be floating in the river, dead, things like that. So they can somewhat be considered nature's cleanup crew, which we always say mm-hmm. that about like hyenas and vultures and things like that. And being that piranhas are maybe middle, upper of the food chain in uh, the rivers in South America is that they do, if they were gone, then there might be an abundance of insects because they eat insects or smaller fish. Uh, some plants would overgrow because they actually will eat plants and or organic detritus and things like that. So these, you know, these middle, we always talk a lot about keystone or apex predators in the food chain or food webs. But in the same instance, if there's any conservation issues with an animal that's in the middle of the food chain, that affects, I mean, once again, top the top and, and the bottom, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, because yeah. piranhas, because they are fed on by caimans, birds, river dolphins, right? We love river dolphins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, other really, really large fish that... I did, I did go down some of my uh, down the rabbit hole watching some of these amazing fishing videos, uh, oh, trying, yeah, like, yeah, trying yeah. to catch the big one on the and it wasn't yeah, even piranhas, monsters, it was yeah. other species, yeah, other river monsters, yeah. other species, and uh, I do have a um, I'm not an avid fisherman at this point in time in my life, but I do come from a long line of them on my on my mom's side of the family of just gullah gullah mm-hmm. to all my family members out there of people that like love mm-hmm. to fish. And so, yeah, I was really caught up in some of these videos. And, and of course they throw them all back. So I, I'm a fan of that, obviously. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was funny. I definitely didn't went down the rabbit hole of just <laughs> watching some of these videos, but so there are much larger fish in, uh, yes. uh, in a lot of these rivers in South America as well. But yeah, I, I just think that they have a really important niche because they are, so well-rounded and diverse with what they eat. Oh, River Monsters is an amazing show. <laughs> yeah, there's some, a lot scarier fish in the deep of rivers than uh Yeah, you can stay up late on YouTube at night just being like, oh my gosh, what is this? <laughs> that thing's so. in there? I know. Even yeah. Florida. So, well, I all great points, Angie, and, and we always love to talk about it from the animal's perspective. I went down a little bit different route this time. And talk about how this is an important food source for indigenous cultures in the Amazon. So I looked at them a little bit differently because they're not endangered. You know, this is not an endangered species for, as far as we know. Yeah, and some good news. We'd love to celebrate yeah, good news on the podcast. Yeah. Now, the way the Amazon's going, that could change in the next 10 or 20 years because, I mean, the Amazon's on a tipping point where it might just become a big savanna if we keep destroying it at the rate we are. But... For now, you know, the red-bellied piranhas look pretty good in most piranha species. So I looked at it as a sustainable food source. So I found a paper that was published in 2007, and it was biodiversity, food consumption, and the ecological niche dimensions. So a study case of the riverine populations from the Rio Negro in Brazil. So that's why I was like, I was excited you were talking about that. because Oh, perfect. Okay, yeah. Yes. So the dark, the dark sediment these piranhas live in that they live in those ecosystems both you know the the lighter sediment and the other one and they were looking at how important fish are to the river oh gosh riverino populations of the barcelos municipality 
Rio Negro, Amazonas, Brazil. I know I butchered that. I apologize to my <laughs> Spanish-speaking friends or Portuguese-speaking friends. Yeah, I, so. I know, but you're cute when you try, so I appreciate it. <laughs> it's Well, the River Nero people, are, they're rural. They live on the ri- rivers. Fishing mm-hmm. is their mainstay. And then they do some, some small-scale farming. And they went and looked at you know, the fish, how much fish they were catching, what type of fish and how important that was to their food. And what they found was fish are actually a staple of the populations and also the manioc root, uh, what they eat. So these people live on the rivers, you know, the Amazon River, the Rio Negro. And basically, you know, they commercial fishing or ornamental fishing, they do hunt seasonally. They do some slash and burn agriculture, which is just horrible, but they're doing it at a smaller scale other than these big cattle farmers, uh, feed producers down in Brazil are just doing wide scale slash and burn. It's more minor and they do some other things that, you know, roots like Brazil nuts and some other things that they do. Uh, tourism is actually becoming a big thing for them. So when Angie went mm-hmm. down there mm-hmm. supporting local communities. And I found this, this was interesting. The average persons per family was six and a half. So six to seven people in an average family. So, you know, two adults, four to five kids mm-hmm. uh, per family. So when you looked at what they were consuming, food items, I, I looked at animal protein sources. Fish, by and large, was their major protein source. So six to one, I mean, most of their protein came from the fish six to one I meant from meat from hunting. So six meals would be fish. And then one meal would be something they hunted in in the forest. Like, I don't know. Wow. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they'd eat kupibara. Uh, there's some wild pigs down there. Uh, maybe monkeys. I don't, I, I don't know what these locals were eating. They didn't, they didn't really detail that. They do get some frozen chicken in. So for any ag food source, that was the most common. So six to one. Six meals fish, one meal chicken. Beef and pork was very little, uh, 20 to one. You know, 20 meals of fish to one of beef or pork. So fish was like 70% of all their protein sources. So these these things are, are, are very important. Now, when they looked at what type of fish very quickly, so this isn't so boring, is uh, the raku was the number one. Uh, so what they did is they went, uh, each fisherman, five fishing ch- trips, then they averaged out the type and species of fish that they caught to see what was the most prevalent and then which ones they, they ate, right? So the Araku was the number one. They caught the most. It's a small bait fish, I would say. It's smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tucanara was number two. That's the peacock bass. It's a little bit bigger. A very pretty fish. God, if you look that up, very pretty. But piranha was number three. So, you know, many species of piranha, red-bellied was in there. So they actually caught a lot of piranha, you know. So if I did numbers on average for each five fishing trips, they would catch 128 Araku, 101 Tucanari, 67 piranha, you know, and then a bunch of other types of fish, much, much less. Now, when you transfer that into meals, it was interesting. The Araku, because it's such a small fish, only provided 35 meals where the piranha is a bit bigger, so it provided 37 meals. Nice. So, you know, so they're eating them. And, and it's just the whole point of this that I looked it up and I, and I mentioned it is 
you know, the study piranha, red bellies too, and all the other piranha species are a major source of protein for these people. And over the three years, Angie and I've been doing this podcast, a lot of times we talk about oceans and fishing, and we're going to cover like bluefin tuna within the year, some of these bigger, more popular ocean going species that are in danger of extinction. But we got to look at our freshwaters too. We really haven't. I mean, we looked at things like the hellbender and the electric eel and, and, you know, we looked at uh, river otters from their perspective, but we haven't really looked at it from the fish perspective. And it's something that I think Angie and I are going to push in the next coming year or two. We can focus a little bit more on our natural rivers, streams, lakes, um, because I really believe we need to, we need to, to save and protect them. Oh yeah. And I'm a fresh, yeah, I'm a freshwater girl growing up on Lake Michigan, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and spending my childhood there and wanting to keep it safe and clean. And it's, of course it has its own issues as well. It's a lot of the, a lot of the great lakes and, or just inland lakes in general and streams. So no, you bring up some really, really good points. And of course, fish is such a critical part of a lot of the local, culture and uh like you said food source so yeah we got to keep our eye on healthy clean waters uh even though the red belly piranha per se is not considered endangered or anything like that at this point in time yeah and so it's just like you know we i I just want to do some more digging so the next freshwater fish or something we cover i'll definitely kind of look more at river pollution Uh, i know like there's there's things in the Amazon that are going on is like gold mining and people use mercury a lot using gold to help separate gold out and they just dump the mercury in the river. Yikes. You know, so talk about an environmental catastrophe. Mercury yeah. is so deadly to life. So anyways, it's something I think we, we need to look more at, but I thought it was interesting that from this perspective, it's good that it seems like this is a, a sustainable food source mm-hmm. for people in the Amazon you know, so, uh, you know, it's just the cattle ranching stuff that's going on down there isn't sustainable. It just right. is not. Yeah. You know, yeah. You just got to be careful but... getting that piranha off the hook. <laughs> that's yes. what I learned. On, <laughs> I know. That's what I learned on some of the fishing shows I was watching last night. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. All right. So let's jump through evolution really quick. It's pretty interesting with piranha. Uh, the, the class, which is way up there, is Actinopatergi. So the ray-finned bony fishes. Uh, the Caracosiforms, which is interesting, that's the order. So there's 18 families in there, over 2,000 species of fish. These are really interesting because the Caracosiforms diversified during the Cretaceous period. You know, so 150 million years ago, these fish in Africa and South America, South America was splitting. So you'd get some fish isolated in these mm-hmm. freshwater systems in Africa and South America. Not getting too deep into it, the, the fish in Africa are still pretty archaic. They said okay. like the cichlids and things, like mm-hmm. that's a popular fish in tanks. Whereas the piranha is a little bit more adaptive. Like in South America, it's interesting. They they really adapt more hmm. through change yeah. uh, than the African fish. And so we know we can date this family way back 150 million years ago. They actually found a species of fish in the fossil record that had teeth like a piranha doesn't necessarily mean that's a piranha relative, but it could be the, the only evidence we do have of piranha is about 25 million years ago. 
you know, the first species that, that kind of look like a piranha, uh, very similar, but they think the modern piranha date back about 1.8 million years ago is really when they emerged in that genus. So the family of the red belly piranha is Cerasolmidae, and that's like the large family of piranha, 90 species, but that's also the Paku, silver dollar fish. The Paku is the one that's got like, um, it's like the the chompers. They're not super sharp. They're like chomper fit, you know, like. Oh, they look like, like smiling teeth. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's the Paku fish. Yeah. <laughs> that one's crazy looking too. That was crazy looking too. Um, and then, you know, the piranha is very diversified, but the genus for the red belly is Pygocentris. And there's four species of piranha in there. And then the red belly specifically is Pygocentris nateri. Nater- mm-hmm. No, naterari. Naterari. That's mm-hmm. it. Well, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was reading that, of course, a lot of the piranhas are carnivorous, so they eat meat. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of dietary variation among them. And so they're hard to classify as far as which ones fall into which categories. Mm-hmm. And uh, once again, I just always have to give a shout out to the taxonomists that do this for a living and figure all this stuff out. Kudos to I you know. guys, because I was reading that, yeah, there might be between 40 and 60 different species of piranha and 12 different scientific families. And it's, it's, it's convoluted. Crazy. It's complicated. It's, yeah. yeah. The, it, the piranha wasn't easy. Like it's, you know, and this is just the genus of the red belly. There's more in that Sarasalsalmidae yeah. family, you know, different piranha species. You're like some that, that don't eat meat, right. you know, versus Correct. ones that do. And yeah, it definitely was. It is very convoluted and confusing a little bit. The, now the huge piranha, I know you might have heard about this one. <laughs> I might have stayed up late watching videos about this one. Yes. The good thing is it went extinct about 5 million years ago. Yes. But this thing was about a meter long, weighed 20, 22 pounds or 10 kilograms, they, they think. Huge, huge, huge. But Mega Piranha Parensis. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> What do you know about Mega Piranha Parensis? Because you said some things, and I, I was like, yeah, I, I went down that rabbit hole a little bit too, about just how insane they are. Well, yeah, Chris, that's when I sent you that article because I was like, oh, this is right up Chris's alley. It has to do yes, with yes. big, you know, the biggest ancestor and yes. something to do with dinosaurs and bite force, and so. And I didn't fully understand how the researcher were able to extrapolate the data from the fossil records, but. Mm-hmm. Well, however they did it, once again, science is amazing, but they were able to demonstrate that the mega piranha, once again extinct many, many millions of years ago, had a bite force as high as over a thousand pounds. It's insane. And remind you, it, it was only about 22 pounds. So it's a big yes. fish. A big, you know, that's, that's a, a it's fisherman. It's not a great white. No. It's not megalodon. No. 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 And so the paper noted that uh, T-Rexes or Tyrannosaurus rex, its bite force was three times higher than this ancient piranha. But T-Rex is like, weighs a lot more. I don't know exactly how much more. A lot more. In relation to body size. Okay. In relation to body size, this mega piranha, even today, I don't want to talk about the black piranha. Yeah. Bite force is way more than a T-Rex. Yeah. 
in body size comparisons of bony fishes. So even Megalodon, a piranha's bite force is way more in Newtons than a great white shark and a Megalodon. It's crazy. This teeny tiny, well, that tiny compares comparatively. 22 pound fish versus a, a what? A, what's a, what was a great white with five tons? When, not five tons. Are they that big? Ten, oh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, Chris, I, I think that a, a large great white is going to be about a ton or 2,000 pounds. Okay, okay. Okay, big fish. Big fish. Big fish. Yeah. <laughs> big fish. <laughs> and this piranha is small in comparison. Uh-huh. Bite force is way more than that shark. Yeah. That's insane. That's well, insane. Well, watching some of these videos last night, and they were produced by BBC and National mm-hmm. Geographic, and we'll, we'll link some on our show notes, but these fishermen would, would catch them, and fish, fishermen slash fish biologists were catching them, and then they were doing bite force on them. And I watched them like break through a Kevlar, like the stuff, the bulletproof stuff, like little wire. I watched them break through steel. It was oh, just God. nuts. I mean, Ugh. and these are the ones that are alive today. These are the current species, yeah. not this, yeah. so which are much smaller, right? Um, only a couple of pounds, depending on the species. And yeah, I mean, they have really, really, really strong bite force and really, really sharp teeth. No, it, it, I mean, absolutely. It just, that was, again, like I said, it, and some of the behavior, you're going to laugh. But yeah, the, the black piranha is the the strongest yet recorded for any bony fish today. Uh, 30 times its own weight, uh, three times greater bite force than the American alligator that we talked about. You know, they they have the, the strongest bite force of anything, but we're talking a relative body size. So when we're saying be careful taking them off the hook, don't take them off. Don't even fish for them. I don't know how they do it because I don't want my my fingers near there because they will take it off. What is crazy, and the reason they can bite so so much, is their jaw muscles. Their jaw muscle makes up 2% of the total body mass. 2% of their whole body is their jaws. So talk about chompers. Like <laughs> That's just, insane. That's insane. Yeah. Uh, just really quickly, I always like to, to throw this stat in there. Piranhas can live up to eight years. So if you were looking to get a fish, that's a long living fish in your tank. But anyways, throw that in there. I want to dork more out on these teeth. Well, so they have the jaw muscles, as you mentioned, that make up 2% of their body weight and this uh, pretty incredible bite force. But it's also the teeth that, of course, need to do the the tearing or the cutting. And and we'll put some photos on our show notes. But basically, the piranha's top and bottom teeth work together like scissors to cut up food. And for the most part, saying that piranha's teeth are razor sharp is pretty accurate. If you zoom in on their teeth, because they're they're small in comparison, right? Like to to our Mm -hmm. eye or whatever. They have the similar enamel and structure of a shark tooth. And what I also found super fascinating is that just like sharks, the great white shark, they lose teeth and then regrow them. Because obviously the teeth are doing so much work and becoming dull over time and things like that. And then even more fascinating different than a shark. Uh, it's not uncommon for piranhas, depending on the species or whatnot, uh, to lose like large amounts of teeth through the lifetime because they replace their teeth in like groups and in, in, in mm-hmm. multiples, basically, unlike 
unlike sharks. And mm-hmm. so you might, especially they've seen and noted in, uh, under human care in aquariums where a piranha might only have half of its lower jaws of chompers at a mm-hmm. certain time while it's mm-hmm. replacing them. So a different evolutionary strategy to deal with an important aspect of keeping these razor blade teeth sharp are really, really interesting. Oh, I, I, the next shark species we do, and I, I know which one we probably will do, uh, we will definitely dive down that hole and how these teeth are replaced. Because I'm sitting there like, what's the biological function? Not biological function. What's the biology between you know behind regrowing the ossification, all that stuff? How it's, does it how does it pop forward? I like, know. Well, just, even with my yeah. own boys, well, taking them to the dentist, uh, it was f- so fascinating. The first time they got X-rays done before they had lost any of their baby teeth, and so there's a, you're mm-hmm. actually born mm-hmm. like a baby, a baby's jaw area has all of your teeth you need for life. So it has two rows of them and talk about Halloween and kind of creepy looking. It looks, yeah. it looks, it looks kind of weird. And then <laughs> my older son, he lot is losing his teeth pretty early compared to a lot of mm. other, the average age or whatever. And so then I'm mm. like, well, why, what does that mean? Is there like a environmental or hormonal trigger? Yeah. Or is he normal? All these unfortunate mom guilt things or wonders or as a scientist or questions. Hey, I have. Xander is not normal. Xander is a brilliant, a brilliant. Well, uh, his teeth are coming in kid. pretty fast, so <laughs> He's I don't be know. Our dinosaur expert. Yeah, uh, I don't know what that means, awesome. but at any rate, it, but but like you yeah. said, I, I was wondering about the timing and. But as young children, they tend to lose them in certain orders, and I'm just fascinated by the the yeah. the pathways or the kind of molecular mechanisms. Of, okay, now you're going to use your front left tooth, and now you're going to lose this, and. Yeah. It's just really, what, yeah, what, what the physiology is, is really interesting. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, nope, that'll be a fun one. We'll do teeth next time. <laughs> I know, I know. And I love Xander. If, if go back to Platypus two years ago when I was interviewing him. For, oh, he was oh, such a little the, guy then. So cute. Oh, uh, he was little as a voice. Now he's 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 growing up, Angie. They grow so fast. Uh, all the parents out there can uh, relate. Uh, so, so the red belly piranha and some other piranha species, you know, this is an opportunistic feeder scavenger forager we've talked about they do eat some things insects crustaceans other fish worms uh, yes birds birds they will eat some mammals you know capybaras things that that may be in their territory uh really this was a new this was the word of the week that i came up with that i found was necrophagus so did you come across that one no but let's see if i can figure out what it means um okay Something dead, mm-hmm. and phagus, something with mouth. Yeah, so eating, eating, swallowing. Dead. Yeah, dead scavenger. Yeah. So they are necrophagists. So they prey upon sick or injured oh, okay. or scavenge on injured fish, birds, mammals, things that fall in there that uh-huh. may fall into the to the water. So my my Latin back- studies for the uh, GI good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did. It got you into school. Yeah. Um, a lot of, I was going to say some jokes there, but <laughs> it fooled me, right? Yeah, exactly. No, you did good on the GRE. You did awesome. No, I but did not. It, um, I did not. I did not. I did, I did good enough. That's all you need. Did good enough. That's all I need to know. I accepted you. You're an amazing grad student, God. Yeah. Oh, well, you're you know, awesome. they're, they're talking about dropping that GRE because it doesn't have anything to do with how a grad student turns out. I mean, no, it's not I a real indicator. dropping it too. Yeah. yeah it's not a real indicator. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Standardized test. Yeah. But okay, good. But macrophages, you got it. Yeah. And it's interesting that to, to link you, to lead you into behavior because the behavior is just fascinating with these fish. You know, you wouldn't think fish behavior would be fascinating, but these guys are. No, it, Chris, it really, really was. And that's where I had a lot yeah. of fun dorking out this week and just learning more. And I can see why fish biologists and fish, fish experts are so fascinated uh, by not only piranhas, but by several mm-hmm. species of fish. And it was fun for me watching, whether it was BBC or National Geographic, seeing the fish ecologists just so in love with the piranha and wanting to learn more about it. And now I get it. And it's also fun from our point of view, when we study a species or want to learn more about species and there's actual scientific evidence about them. And, and there's, don't get me wrong. There's not a ton of biologists or researchers studying piranhas, but compared to some of the species we've looked at in, in the last couple of years, there are more. And so we, there's some things we know a lot of as far as piranhas, the red belly piranhas go, and there's some things that are missing. But what has been studied a lot is their foraging methods. For instance, there was a study in 2007 that looked at how piranhas were attracted to food. And what they found is they are attracted to noise, splashing, and blood. And so why this is as far as noise and splashing isn't necessarily for the carnivorous or carrion portion of them that are seeking that out. Some of it has to do with the falling fruits because they are omnivores. They will eat like nuts and seeds and plants and things that fall into the river. And during certain seasons, fruiting time, a nice little, I don't, I'm not familiar with the different fruits of the Amazonian river basin, but when they fall into the river, it makes a splash, as you can imagine, like a small fruit would do. And that alerts certain species of piranha, especially the more omnivorous or herbivorous ones that like, hey, it's time to time to eat. Uh, whereas obviously splashing and or or especially the smell of blood attracts them to either something that's injured or maimed or that they can basically just get their little teeth on. And the study also demonstrated that as far as senses go, piranhas can smell a drop of blood in about 200 liters of water. So if you are bleeding and you have a wound, it's probably not the best idea to rinse it out in no, some of these rivers. No, it's probably better. Don't. It's probably better <laughs> to, to go find a well or uh, something else, right? Yeah. Uh, but the other thing, too, that's fascinating is when you look at just the red-bellied piranha, for instance, it actually has different foraging strategies strategies depending depending on its age. So when it's if it's when it's smaller, it's more likely to search for food during the day. When it grows larger, it's more likely to search search for food during the early evening or at dawn. So more of a little uh, crepuscular type activity. And one of their hunting styles is that they'll basically hide behind or lurk in plants and things like that. Uh, to ambush their prey. So that's something that they might do. Another method is by scavenging or chasing uh, the food. And a lot of this depends on the seasonality, the age of the fish, uh, what's in the water, has it been overfished, underfished, things like that. But a, a 1972 study did show that red belly piranhas, when they are in an aquarium setting, they would go for the Eyes and the tail. That's what they go for yeah, first. I know. 
Oh, no. I'm like, Which, oh. I mean, it sounds very horrible and very Halloween-esque. Yes. However, yes. from a strategic point of view and survival, the t- if you immobilize the tail, it stops the fish from swimming. And if you get you, you injured the eyes, the I mean, that's, eyes, that's it. That's, that's, uh, that's going to, you know, that's, that's going to make a prey item pretty subdued pretty quickly. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. What I also found out, this is not the red belly piranhas, but other species of piranhas can exhibit some cannibalism. However, this is super rare and only when like the food source is really low, like maybe it's the dry mm-hmm. season or the area has been overfished or something like that. And then keep in mind, like we said too, some of them are veg- some species of piranhas are vegetarians, so yeah, yeah. they literally eat just like river weeds and plant material and things like that. And Chris, kind of coming back full circle to what you mentioned at the beginning of the pod about the red-bellied piranha and why they caught uh, your eye when you suggested the specific species of piranha is that they are, although they're small, they're one of the smaller piranhas out there, they are known as some of the more aggressive or the most aggressive species of piranhas that we know about. Mm-hmm. And so that alone is super fascinating. That's where I want to dive into more of like how or why and what does this mean? And and if you're like me and you've watched any of the YouTube videos of a feeding frenzy, that's usually what it's called when it relates to piranhas, mm-hmm. is it is pretty intimidating. And so red belly piranhas live in groups called shoals, and that's S-H-O-A-L. And they often will travel in these groups where I, I think of the word school, but I guess when it's piranha, it's called a shell, a shoal. And these red belly piranhas will often travel in shoals or maybe just think of like a school together as a way to defend themselves from predators, right? Don't forget about the caimans and a lot of the other larger creatures that want to eat them. And they hardly ever actually hunt together, okay? It's, it's a – from the movies and just misconception, it's a popular belief that they – are in these huge kind of Tasmanian devil spinning circles of gobbling up prey. And that's just what they do. Uh, Mm -hmm. But scientists think that when they are together and traveling together, uh, where some of these feeding frenzies can happen in nature, they're actually traveling together to protect themselves from predators and not necessarily for this quote unquote feeding frenzy behavior. And, if they are hunting a species, remember I talked about either the ambush style or the chasing mm-hmm. style, things like that, they're not they're not hunting in a group. So these feeding frenzies that you see on YouTube or whatever it is, is definitely a real behavior. However, it's more of a rare one, uh, even though it is quite fascinating. And we'll put some, like I said, we'll put some links on our show notes uh, because when they do this feeding frenzy behavior, like if there is a carcass in the water and they all happen to be, a shoal happens to be traveling together, they can clear uh, basically a carcass down to just its skeleton in in literally minutes. I mean, not even. Not even. so crazy. For those of you that don't have a long attention span, these are great videos because they're over in like two minutes. It's crazy. (laughs) Like done. Yeah. And yes, although these videos are fun to watch and we do know that these feeding frenzies will happen, I don't want to say that they, you know, they never occur, but they usually, it's pretty, it's, it's more rare than common, a strategy of consuming food. And in general, they are aggressive species, but they're not 
there's not hundreds of them swimming together in the Amazon hunting for humans, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the species are really only going to even be this aggressive or showcase some of this behavior is if you provoke them or if it's breeding season and you're messing with their eggs and things like that. Um, In general, black piranhas, red belly piranhas are not aggressive towards humans. Uh, So that doesn't mean to say that somebody is swimming across um, a South American river uh, mm-hmm. that they might not emerge with a, with a nip or two here and there. Oh, um, <laughs> but for swimmers, it's... <laughs> might lose a finger or two, but it's all right. Just get yeah. <laughs> and generally, if you're swimming, it, the danger comes if the water level is low, if the prey is scarce. And so when we talk about fishing and overfishing and certain species in the Amazonian river basin being in danger and that kind of thing, that's going to be a problem. If you're swimming around and kicking around their spawning nests, uh, if they, so yeah, I mean, that's, and, but most animals we cover on this podcast, there's a very similar case. They just probably don't have such a amazing bite force. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then of course, a lot of the bites happen from fishermen untangling, uh, right. nets or hooks or things like that. Um, and, but they're the word on the street though, if they are going to bite you, they do go for the toes or the feet. So. <laughs> well, Just I keep, can throw the data in there. Yeah. Keep those you protected real quick. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's as far as attacks on people, you get it before we get some other cool behaviors. It, it's like one or two a year. It, it's, it's not well documented, but it is rare. I mean, they're not like Angie said out there. I mean, as much as I'm sure there's people swimming in their environment, it's, you know, it's very rare when it does happen. The reports I could find were like young children, five or six years old that were attacked and killed. A couple of them, they weren't sure if the children had drowned and then the piranhas ate them or ate part of the part of the people after. So if somebody dies and is in the river system, say a human corpse, these fish will each eat, eat the corpse. They will. They will. Um, so they're, they're not sure. But there has been a couple attacks where piranhas have attacked people. Uh, one, you know, is uh, reading the story about a drunken 18-year-old in Bolivia. He was attacked. He, he fell in the river, was attacked, died from blood loss when they got him out. So there, there are some of those horror stories out there of piranhas uh, attacking people. But again, very rare. It, it, it's not it's not common. So I wouldn't be specifically scared, but I wouldn't want to be in that water very long. Just just that's me. That's just me. <laughs> there's more things in the deep. You know, there's more right. things. Right. I mean, deep I was on a nice a nice little uh, the river boat when I went and saw the meeting of the waters or the merging of the waters. So yeah. yes, I, I agree. I wasn't really yeah. too keen to take a take a swim because the water's so dark too you don't really necessarily know know what's down there right yeah 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 but yeah chris overall just even from their hunting or omnivorous strategies i was just fascinated that they're that well-rounded and that although they're considered aggressive they're not that's not really what they're doing they're not just these little tornadoes of teeth circling all over <laughs> everything good. that's in the Amazon in general. I mean, they're yeah. usually they're actually usually hunting by themselves, and these frenzies are a pretty rare occurrence. Although, in an aquarium setting, of course, where you have a lot of them, and you're you know feeding them a carcass or whatever it is, yes, they they can be pretty 
amazing, you know, if they're caught on tape. But once again, in the wild and nature and uh, their natural habitat, that's it's going to be pretty rare. But what also knocked my socks off this week, and, yes. and I definitely already shared some <laughs> giggles about this, yes, is yes. red belly piranhas make a, a fair amount of noise. And in fact, <laughs> that's, that's the, it's crazy. The first one I came across was this noise called barking. And I was like, what? And so I always, whenever something strikes me as just extra crazy, and I not, I shouldn't say crazy, extra cool. That's crazy. I'm sorry. That's yeah. crazy. That's a crazy, a fish yeah. that barks. Yeah. Think about that. A fish that barks. So okay. I just, once again, I, I don't trust everything I read. And so I always like to get, mm-hmm. just check sources. And so I went to the actual current biology, which is a pretty well-known, well-regarded uh, peer-reviewed journal. So there's an article from 2011 where some researchers and physiologists, fish physiologists, wanted to investigate some of the sounds that are made by piranhas. Uh, And what they found is there's three unique sounds, okay? And the first one is barking. So it's true. They bark. Mm -hmm. And if you'll give me a second, I will play a clip because you probably still don't believe me. So let me get a clip of them barking. We'll start off with that. What what was that? Please tell me. What was that? That's insane. And what that was is that was a piranha making a noise similar to the sound of a barking dog with a frequency at about 120 hertz. And the researchers in this current biology paper They found that the fish will generate this noise for head-on-head confrontations that they're not fans of, that will usually follow with some biting or territorial, like, you know, get out of here. So it's actually appropriate. It's called a barking because if you think of a barking dog, a lot of times it has to do with intruders and things like that. So just phenomenal, right? I mean, who knew? And so one of the reasons the the biologist set out to study this was because there is a sound that's really well known for fishermen. Those, um, those that are brave enough and a lot of the indigenous folks that fish, uh, fish out piranhas from the, the Amazonian rivers mm-hmm. is to make this sound called drumming and drumming is known to happen when they pull them out mm-hmm. of the water with a net or with a hook. And so that's why the researchers set out to figure out what the heck, what is this drumming sound? And what the researchers found was this drumming noise um, was at a lower frequency of about 40 hertz. And to our ears, our human ears, it sounds like like a drum, like drumming. Um, And they investigate further to find out that this drumming sound was uh, created from the movement produced Mm -hmm. by a fish's swim bladder. And for those of you that are mammal enthusiasts like Chris and I, or even reptiles or birds, you might not be familiar with the swim bladder, but basically the swim bladder or gas bladder is basically an organ, an internal organ that covers a large length uh, of the fish's body and sits on top of a lot of the uh, rudimentary like organs as far as the stomach and the intestine and things like that. And it basically helps bony fish not the cartilaginous ones, but bony fish helps contribute to their uh, buoyancy so they can basically stay at 
a certain depth of water without having to waste energy swimming so they can be where they want to be. So it's a particular movement of the swim bladder that creates this drumming noise. And they also found that this, this movement of the swim bladder is what also caused the barking. So they've got this super adaptable swim bladder that helps them stay afloat at the depth that they want to be, but then also can it's generate crazy. sound. It's nuts. Somehow. It's nuts. Yeah. Crazy. Nuts. And then the last sound, which is not surprising, but just fun facts, is a, a snapping sound. And you can imagine that comes from the oh, snapping yeah. of that jaw closed. And that frequency is about, uh, the researcher said, uh, uh, 1,740 okay. hertz. And th- they will use that, of course, you know, when these videos where I'm watching where they're snapping steel and things like that. But it's more um, when they're chasing after fish a lot of times with the intent of biting that they'll produce this sound. <laughs> so if you hear that water. run, get out of the water fast. <laughs> run, yes. Yes, run. yes. But once again, just the physiology is just, just so incredible. That's why oh, I, love, biology, I love this yeah, podcast. Love and it. so, oh man, who knew, right? So piranhas bark and they drum. And I mean, yeah, my goodness. Yeah. I, I like all the, I, I like all those things. Uh, and although they're found all over different river, rivers and tributaries within uh, the Amazon basin. They typically aren't a migratory species. However, they are going to move uh, for breeding purposes, spawning purposes. And then, of course, uh, if, if food resources are low, they're going to be more likely to, to enter waters where they maybe weren't. Um, and when I looked into their their breeding, um, a lot of their wild or natural breeding habits aren't well known, uh, or the spawning research because, well, they're somewhat understudied and they are also like in these dark, a lot of times these, these darker waters, harder to study things like that. But we do know a lot of general things just from watching them spawn, um, under human care in, a, in aquariums and things like that. And researchers have demonstrated that Piranhas in general will have like two reproductive seasons, which are tied to, of course, mm-hmm. water level, right? And when it is breeding season, what's super crazy is uh, a lot of the red belly piranhas will lose their red coloration. And so they okay. aren't red bellied okay. anymore for yeah. a temporary amount of time. And what researchers think this does is this helps breeding individuals be able to identify each other versus like non-breeding individuals. So obviously if it's something is red, you stay away from it because it's like not it's season or not of the right age or things like that. Um, which is just crazy. And so, but during this time when they lose their coloration, they'll basically are seeking out their habitat that they, they want to breed and sp- and for anyone that's living in the area or fishing in the area, they definitely, the habitat selection of where they go is m- more unique than just like mm-hmm. the wide open river. Um, and so a lot of times they'll go to uh, these underwater floating meadows and things like that, a little bit more offshore, if you will, um, where they, you know, want to. But when male and female do meet up and they decide to pick each other, there's a, a little courtship uh, display that involves swimming in circles and can result in ventral to ventral interactions prior to breeding and then laying the eggs. Uh, researchers for a long time thought that there was a little bit of a courtship display of the adults like swimming around in circles together. 
But researchers taking a closer look at it now think that they might actually be defending their nest at that time. That they're not sure, basically not sure if the swimming in circles around each other is love, lust, or defense. So <laughs> there needs to be a little bit more um, yeah, more of yeah. that studied. Any of you, any of you budding <laughs> young you master, yeah. brave, yeah. brave budding young masters yeah. and PhD students out there, uh, but they are known to do. To, mm-hmm. like I said, do some of this ventral to ventral swimming around each other. Um, but what's really cool is the male will actually like dig the nest. And of course, once the female has been bred, the female will then lay thousands. I think in the red bellied piranha, it's up to about 5,000 eggs in this nest or sand below the water source of where they live. Mm-hmm. But Chris, you will love this. The male has a very important role when it comes to the red-bellied piranha uh, breeding, if you will, um, as far as he mm-hmm. digs the nest. So he digs a nest and it's like bull shaped and about, it's about four to five centimeters in depth and uh, about 10 to 15 centimeters in diameter. And it's, of course, it's going to be at the bottom of the, in the sandy vegetation of whatever water source they're in. And so the female will lay the eggs in clusters and they attach in this nest down to the, the bottom of the vegetation. And what the male will then do um, is he will fertilize the eggs and kind of guard the area then because the eggs hatch only after a few days. So he'll hang out there to make sure... That his mm-hmm. spawn, yeah. if you will. Uh, so he's a good daddy. He's a good daddy. He's there. And yeah, he's yeah. a good daddy. And that's where, and, but that's where, if you, that's when you're taking a dip right next to his 5,000 pride and joy, he might get a little. This isn't the, this isn't right? the daddy I that mean, eats the babies, right? Well, I forgot what species that was. <laughs> it was like, eat I know. No, um, not what that I could find. Not that, that I could find. Covered. No, oh, that he. It was. Uh, it was sea snakes, right? Sea snakes. The dad like eats the young sometimes. <laughs> Some of them. <laughs> if he if he gets like, hungry what? enough, I <laughs> mean, horrible. I know, uh, I know. I did not find good, that in good, the good, good. Uh, in okay, okay. in the red belly piranhas. Uh, but yeah, but usually spawning will occur during the wet season when the water table is a little higher. There's more nutrients and resources in the riverbed, so that would follow in suit that the male red belly. Right. doesn't necessarily need to eat the eggs and he's just protecting them. And, mm-hmm. and once again, mm-hmm. they hatch within like a few days, which is also m- miraculous to me. Uh, yeah, and of course, yeah. once they hatch, they're pretty much on their own. So, so, you know, Angie, like we said earlier, the, these are least concerned because they actually haven't been assessed. So they're, they, they're not endangered uh, that we know of. And I just wanted to talk real quick, you know, really quick. The piranhas are found outside South America. Usually they're pets. And, you know, certain people do. And like Angie said, you, you got to be a really, really careful, good pet owner. Aquarius, there you go, to do that. Aquarist. But they, they have been released, yes. like in Europe and Texas. You know, they've been released in, in the wild, which is not good. That's invasive. And no, don't release your piranha. No. Yeah, no, yeah. knock that off, please. We've got enough problems in Florida with invasive species. Yeah, My yeah. goodness gracious. So I, I guess we're just going to kind of end it on a, a good organization that's working down uh, in South America, right? Not specifically just for piranhas, but. Sure, because piranhas aren't necessarily endangered. Uh, but what I what we, Chris touched on and what we need to focus on, I think, in a, in a future podcast is fresh waters and, and keeping our fresh waterways clean, keeping them healthy. 
And of course, the rainforest in South America and the Amazon and all those rivers and the river basin there is critical uh, as far as needing them to stay healthy, not only for the indigenous people and cultures that live alongside of them, but for all the animals that inhabit them or get food out of them and things like that. And so today I selected uh, the Rainforest Trust, and they can be found at rainforesttrust.org. And they also have a, a beautiful uh, Facebook presence and other social media sites as far as if you just look up Rainforest Trust. It's a really interactive social media page that is going to help educate you all about the work that they're doing to save the rainforest habitat. So that's what I wanted to focus in on habitat because if we save habitat, then we mm-hmm. save species. And yep. right now, as of today, uh, the Rainforest Trust has preserved and saved over 24 million wow acres of land so it's just super important and incredible and they have a ton of specific programs that look at obviously some of the issues with uh forest fires and then some of the issues of course with specific species the piranha was not on there, but once again, the product yeah. <laughs> doesn't, it, uh, yeah. it, it maybe needs less of a bad rap, but doesn't necessarily yeah. need, um, need conservation action at this point. Uh, but besides saving habitat, the rainforest trust really focuses on threatened forest, saving endangered wildlife. And then of course, involving the communities in that area to participate in saving those communities. And Chris, because of these actions, um, over 4.1 billion, with a B, metric tons of CO2, carbon dioxide equivalents, have been safeguarded or sequestered um, thanks to the habitat that they've saved. So really incredible group. Check out their Facebook page and, and or their website uh, because as we saw this last uh, summer and just time and time again, the Amazon is definitely in need of our help. And if if we obviously save the Amazon and the species in it. We're also going to protect the waterways, which is critical. Yeah. And we're going to be coming back to the Amazon like again and again and again. And we're, we're going to be visiting Australia soon too, because uh, you know, their fire season is going to start kicking up again. So we got to, we got to keep our eyes uh, down under, but mm-hmm. yeah, fun episode, fun species this month. We've got another one next week and then we're going to end the month on a very special episode with one of our close friends fellow podcasters. So uh, we'll save that announcement for next week. But piranhas, Angie, like, wow, I was wowed. I was really wowed with the species, learned so much. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to uh, record the next one. Yes. Thank you everyone for listening and learning and loving, conserving all species, big, small, with teeth, without teeth, with scales, with feathers, with fur. And this week definitely gave me a new outlook on the piranhas. They are not to be scared after all, even though uh, they do look a little ferocious. And so if you want to learn more about piranhas, definitely check out our show notes. Um, And please, please, please share this podcast with other people to help get them in the know and hopefully have a good time while learning. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.